Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. We've never done this on this show before, ladies and gentlemen, but we're going to talk both about the NFL and apologetics right here. First, the NFL. I need to talk a segment about this and what's going on in the NFL and police brutality and the protests and all this. Let me just start out by saying I think we can all agree that police officers have a very difficult job. And I think that race often becomes a factor in how cops make decisions. Now, you say, why Why do you say that, Frank? Well, according to Heather McDonald, who wrote the book, The War on Cops, she said this, a police officer is 18.5 times more likely to be killed by a black than a cop killing an unarmed black person. Let me say that again. A police officer is 18.5 times more likely to be killed by a black than a cop killing an unarmed black person. Now, if that's true, you can understand why some police officers might be a little jittery when it comes to race. That may be true, but to tell you the truth, I'm not exactly sure what to believe with regard to, to, uh, with regard to statistics like this. I don't know. I do believe this, and I think most people would agree with this, that most police officers are honorable people who serve their communities admirably and selflessly. But as in any group of people, there are bad apples in the group known as the police force as well, right? Every group has bad apples, so do the police force. So I'm sure that police brutality and racial profiling are real problems in some localities. Anecdotally, my black friends tell me they've been pulled over for seemingly no reason other than they were driving in a white part of town. I'm a white guy. I've never had a problem like that, but I, I don't doubt this at all. I, I don't doubt that they've been pulled over and harassed just because they're black. So let's admit that our justice system is not completely just. We're fallen human beings, so it'll never be completely just. But we should strive to improve it, obviously. And the NFL players who are protesting are protesting a real problem that needs attention. In fact, those that are protesting for police brutality or racial profiling, that, 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 that is an issue in some localities, I'm sure. However, in my opinion, the players and their league, the NFL, are going about it in completely the wrong way. And let me add, so is the president. Let me start with the, the players. First of all, the players have no right to protest as an employee of their team or the NFL. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution protects their right to free speech against the government. In other words, the government can't prohibit their right to free speech. Their employer can. In fact, their employer can tell them to shut up anytime they want. In fact, the NFL tells their players what they can't say all the time. In fact, at 9-11, the New York Giants and the, uh, and the New York Jets wanted to honor the uh, fallen in 9-11 when that happened they wanted to put I think something on their uniform and the NFL said no no you can't do it in fact uh, last year when those five Dallas cops were killed the Dallas Cowboys wanted to put some sort of patch on their 
on their uniform to honor the Dallas cops, and the NFL said, no, you can't. This past 9-11, some of the players wanted to wear cleats in honor of the fallen, and the NFL said, no, you can't. So the NFL can tell these players what to do with regard to speech on the field any time they want, and they've chosen not to. The NFL, in my view, has lost all credibility and by the way, did you know the NFL is a nonprofit institution? Yes, it gets tax benefits. I don't know how that is or why that is, but it is a nonprofit. It's lost all credibility, all backbone, all moral authority and common sense. I've not only lost interest in the NFL, and I've been a long-time fan, but now I'm on the verge of actively opposing it unless it reverses course. So the NFL has handled this completely the wrong way. Secondly, the national anthem is a tribute to our nation and the armed forces. And those armed forces and police officers, by the way, protect our very right to protest in the first place. Therefore, it's completely self-defeating and disrespectful to protest the entire nation and the people who secure your, liberty, your liberties for a singular problem in that nation. If you're a player, then single out the folks who are causing the problem. Don't disrespect the entire nation. Now, some will say, well, look, the players don't intend to disrespect the entire nation or the armed forces. I don't care what they intend. They're disrespecting the nation and the armed forces. Find another way. I mean, if you're a player, use your social media platform and speak up when you have the opportunity. But don't diss one of the few nations in the world that will shed the blood of its police and servicemen to protect your right to protest. Our liberty-protecting constitution is unique in the world. Yet some people want to disrespect the very people who swear a death oath to protect it. I mean, think about the servicemen who are forward deployed right now in Afghanistan. You know, out, out in Afghanistan and Iraq and these other places, they have the Armed Forces Network. I watched the Armed Forces Network when I was in the Navy. I saw the Super Bowl where the Giants beat the Broncos in 1987 in the Philippines on the Armed Forces Network. And they, they broadcast NFL games. Imagine these people out there on the front lines. They turn on the TV. How do they feel when they see players disrespecting the flag in the nation? Players, you want to protest something? Find another way. Now, what about the president? I agree with President Trump that the players, regardless of their intentions, are disrespecting the nation and the armed forces, including those who have died protecting the very freedoms and lucrative way of life, I might add, that these players enjoy. But President Trump shouldn't disrespect himself. He shouldn't disrespect the players or the office by referring to anyone as SOBs. That's just immoral. These players, whether you agree with them or not, are made in the image of God and deserve your respect, just like you should expect them to respect you and the nation. Dennis Prager, the uh, radio host and columnist, wrote this this week in a column. He said the president should have said something like this. To see professional athletes publicly dishonor the flag for which hundreds of thousands of Americans have died, the flag that millions of Americans have seen drape the coffin of their child, their spouse, their sibling, their parent, or another loved one is as morally repulsive as it is un-American. And he's absolutely right. That's what Dennis Prager said the president should have said. He should have said something like that. He doesn't have to resort to name-calling. He doesn't have to be coarse. Look, the culture's coarse enough already. We don't need the president saying stuff like this. As right as he might be about them disrespecting the nation and disrespecting the flag, you don't have to disrespect people to tell them that they're disrespecting the flag. 
It's self-defeating as well. So we need people who are going to talk about this issue rationally. And so far, nobody's talking about it rationally. Uh, At least not the president, at least not the players, and certainly not the NFL. The NFL, led by Roger Goodell, uh, is uh, is completely off the mark here. If you're going to tell your players not to allow them to honor the dead, the dead cops in Dallas, or not to honor those killed at 9-11, but you're going to allow them, you're going to allow players to uh, dishonor the flag and dishonor the, uh, the armed forces, even though they don't intend to dis- disrespect the armed forces, then the NFL... You have no common sense. You have no moral authority. And people are losing interest. And I hope people continue to lose interest until the players in the NFL get some sense. As I said earlier, their cause or their the issue they're protesting has some merit to it. It's a problem. It needs to be it, it needs to have attention brought to it, but you don't bring attention to it by disrespecting the nation or the armed forces. Regardless of what your intentions are, that's what you're doing. And so it's time to reverse course, players. It's time to reverse course, Mr. President. It's time to speak rationally about this issue. And for cops out there who are treating people unfairly, they need to be called on the carpet, and they need to change their behavior as well. Anyway, that's what I think about it. And maybe at a future date, we'll open up the phone lines and you can tell me what you think about it. But we're going to come right back and talk about apologetics, the difference between presuppositional apologetics and classical apologetics. In fact, we're having a debate at the Southern Evangelical Seminary National Conference in a couple of weeks. I'll tell you about that as well. I'm Frank Turek. Don't go away. Welcome back to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. We present evidence for Christianity. We cross-examine ideas against it. Sometimes we talk about the NFL like we did in our first segment. But now we're talking to the great Dr. Richard Howe, who is a professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary. And uh, we've had on the program before. He's also one of the faculty members at CIA, the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. By the way, keep an eye on the uh, website. Here in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be announcing an advanced CIA for CIA graduates. That'll be May 3rd to the 5th in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then the regular CIA will be next August as well. It's always in August. We'll tell you about that coming up as well. But I want to tell uh, tell you about what's happening August 13th and 14th right here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And my guest, Dr. Richard Howe, will be one of the speakers. In fact, he's, in, he's going to be participating in a debate and a dialogue. We'll tell you about as the program unfolds here. Anyway, this conference is the top apologetics conference probably in the country, maybe the world. And every year it's the second weekend in October. This one is at, at Calvary Church, the big Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. For details, you need to go to ses.edu. That's S-E-S for Southern Evangelical Seminary.edu. And uh, as I say, my guest today, Dr. Richard Howe, is going to have a dialogue and a debate. And we're going to start talking about the dialogue. And we'll start by saying, hey, Richard, how you doing? 
<laughs> doing great. You know, that's one of the reasons why my mom loves you so much is because you think I'm great. He is. The great <laughs> Richard Howe. Whenever I have a question about philosophy, I always call Richard. I do. And, and for years, when Richard lived in Charlotte, we did something called the Thinklings. Richard came up with the name because it used to – C.S. Lewis had the Inklings, right? Who, who, is he, who is he meeting with? He was meeting with Tolkien – Tolkin, I think uh, Hugo Dyson, I think, might have been a part. I'm not sure who else was. People whose names we probably don't even hardly remember today. Uh-huh. And, and what we would do is after Richard was done teaching at the seminary, by about like 10 o'clock at night, he'd come over to the house, and three or four of us would sit around and think for like three hours to like 2 a.m. <laughs> about issues. <laughs> Those were the good old days, right? Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And so – uh, whenever there's a, a, a an issue in philosophy, Richard's always the go-to guy, and uh, you're going to have kind of a philosophical debate. Well, it's a dialogue. It's it's against it's against it's with another brother in Christ by the name of Ken Ham. Most people know who Ken Ham is. Ken has done some amazing things when it comes to uh, the Creation Museum and the uh, Noah's Ark. Exp- I mean, that Noah's Ark thing I think is amazing. I've I've been there, but I've heard some incredible things about it. Um, and you're going to have a dialogue with Ken at the conference on Saturday, the 14th. What's the dialogue about, Richard? This whole thing got started some years ago when it was brought to my attention by one of our staff at the seminary, Eric Gustafson, about how much the young earth community, and I which, of which I would consider myself a, a, a part, as I'm a young earth creationist, not unlike Ken. I'm not a scientist or, or a Bible scholar, but I still... That's the view that I that I hold. He uh, Eric had pointed out to me how much the young Earth community in America had been is dominated by presuppositional apologetics, whatever that ends up being. And uh, I looked into it over the following years and wrote some blogs on it and just discovered that he indeed was right. So the short version is Ken and I are going to discuss this apologetic method known as presuppositionalism because I'm going to try to argue that it doesn't service defending the Christian faith as well as the classical model, which we are known as or known by the seminary. So it's really a, a dialogue over the methods in which people do apologetics. And since he and I already are in solidarity with respect to these issues of the age of the earth, that won't be the divider between us. We can just table that and say, look, I'll grant whatever you want as far as the you know Noah's flood being universal, six literal days of creation, uh, we'll just we'll grant that. That won't be a point of contention. We're going to talk about well, how does one advance the case for Christianity, not just the issues of age of the earth, but Christianity more broadly considered. And that's what we're going to have the dialogue about. Okay, well, let's start with before we get to presuppositionalism. Can you give our listeners a brief overview of what the classical approach to apologetics is? Classical apologetics would observe and defend and recognize the viability of what theologians call natural theology. So natural theology would just be the, the data that human beings can, can amass about God by virtue of how God has revealed himself in creation. So in other words, reasoning from God's creation, from effect to cause, classical apologetics say there will be a number of things that we can know about God just by looking at his creation. So it's basically Romans 1.20 is sort of the main go-to verse for the classical model, where Paul says that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen through the things that are made. 
So we reason from the things that are made. We see rocks and trees and people and dogs, and then we reason from that what the cause of those things must be. And we conclude about these invisible attributes of God, that God exists, that he's omnipotent, omniscient, timeless, spaceless, all good, all knowing, all powerful, and these these sort of superlative attributes that we're used to hearing about uh, that characterize Christianity. The classical model is going to say there's a lot that we can know about God just from the unaided human reason. Certainly, there are things that we can't know about God. The Trinity has to be revealed to us, or the second coming of Jesus has to be revealed to us. So we believe that God has his general revelation through nature, and then his special revelation through the scriptures. And and so this, this recognition of the viability of general revelation and our ability to know these things through reason, that's the kind of characteristic of the classical approach. And when we defend Christianity, I know Richard does this on a college campus, I do this on a college campus, we typically, at least I do, we start with the issue of truth. Does truth exist? What evidence do we have that truth exists? Of course, it's self-defeating to say there's no truth. Then we move on to the question, does God exist? And we can give evidence for God, uh, like the cosmological, teleological, and moral arguments can give evidence for God. Then we might move on to our miracles possible. And then we'll get to the New Testament and see if the New Testament is telling us the truth about the resurrection of Christ. That's kind of the classical approach, the order in which you might try and show somebody that Christianity is true. But when it comes to the presuppositionalist approach, Richard, what first of all, what is the presuppositionalist approach, and, and how would somebody like Ken Ham use it to convince somebody else that Christianity is true? Uh, in effect, the presuppositionalist is going to say that unless someone presupposes the existence of God as a starting point, then knowledge is not possible. So there are various ways in which they say this. They'll say that the the presupposition that God exists, and not just any God, but the Trinitarian God of the Bible, the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, the presupposition of that God and that the Bible is his word is the starting point of all human knowledge. So rather than those being conclusions that one can come to by starting from some common human experience, let's say our experience of the physical world, rather than starting with that and then reasoning to the conclusion that there's the God of the Bible and the, uh, and the Bible is his word and these kind of things, they, they sort of reverse the process and say, you have to presuppose God. Now, some people would immediately kind of balk at that and say, well, if you, if you presuppose God, then the task is over. What is, what is it left for apologetics to do? So your more sophisticated presuppositionalists, what they try to do to actually make an argument is to, say, is to try to demonstrate to the unbeliever that uh, unless these things are presupposed, the unbeliever is not able to actually reason at all. So it'd be analogous to, though it's not exactly like this, but this would be an analogy. Suppose you were arguing with someone about logic. You mentioned we start out about, in, in the classical model, we have to establish common ground of logic. Suppose somebody said they didn't hold to the laws of logic. Well, you would try to show them that their commitment to logic is the precondition for them to know anything. It's the precondition for them to even deny that there's logic. They need logic in order to deny logic. So by analogy, if you could imagine taking the word logic out and plugging in the Trinitarian God of the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, then that's what they at least say that that's what they're doing, that they're trying to show people that unless you start out with God, you're not going to be able to have any intelligibility whatsoever. But Richard, um, 
okay, let's say before any of the Bible was written. Let's go back to the days of Abraham. You know, there's no Bible. Um, what would they say about, um, could Abraham know there was a God? I mean, obviously he did. What? I, I don't understand how this could be a precondition or a presupposition to know anything. People knew things right. before the Bible was ever written. So how would they respond to that that kind of, of uh, objection? Right. I think in principle what they would say is what Abraham would have started with is is the the basically the equivalent of what would have been a Bible in his day, which for Abraham's sake, in Abraham's life, that would have been this direct communication from God. Uh, so granted, they will admit, yeah, there were times before there was a Bible, but the principle, I think, is what they're saying is, person has to presuppose God and his word. But of course, what his word, in their estimation, actually looked like has changed over since Adam and Eve in the garden, where God directly communicated to the accumulation of God's revelation through his prophets and such, and then climaxing in his revelation through his son, Jesus Christ, and his apostles. And then that gets sort of codified in what we now know as the Bible. So the principle, I think they would say, is the same. You have to presuppose God and his word, even if it's, it's the case that what his word refers to has actually developed over time. I think they would still say it's the same, it's the same principle. Now, the practical uh, effect of this, with Ken in particular, I don't want to jump ahead if you want to explore. No, no, go ahead. We've got a minute before the break, so start it off. All right, so the practical thing that I want Ken and I, we can pick this up after the break, is that he will oftentimes uh, resist and criticize what he calls outside ideas, that is, outside the Bible, that somehow these outside ideas are illicit for us to uh, inject into the argument to try to substantiate the Bible. So what we can explore after the break, if you want, is just, well, what would be an example of an outside idea in his mind, and then how would I respond to that? Because I think that's going to be the, the rub between the two of us, is what are outside ideas, and are there any that actually are legitimate? Right, and, and maybe we can also talk about sola scriptura a little bit, because I think there's some confusion with regard to that as well. Uh, and yeah. and that, that, that wouldn't be a confusion necessarily... Uh, that maybe Ken has, but some people don't understand what Sola Scriptura is, and so we'll discuss that as well. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. And by the way, this conference that Richard and I are talking about is October 13th to 14th. And think, here are the names that are going to be there in addition to me and Richard. Michael Brown, Norman Geisler, Gary Habermas, Ken Ham, Greg Kokel, Richard Land, J.P. Moreland, Jay Richards, Hugh Ross, and Jay Warner Wallace, and many other speakers. You're not going to want to miss it. Go to ses.edu. That's ses for Southern Evangelical Seminary.edu and sign up now. I'm Frank Turek. Don't go away. We're back in two. Before I get back to Dr. Richard Howe, ladies and gentlemen, I got to make an announcement that we are going back to Israel April 2018. It's a VIP trip. We stay in the best places. We go to the best spots. We have Eli Shukran, the archaeologist, the Jewish archaeologist who discovered the Pool of Siloam and excavated most of the entire city of David as our guide. It's going to be another amazing trip. We just did this trip with Ellie uh, just a few months back. I guess it was March 
uh, March of uh, 2017. We're going back in April of 2018, and we're only taking about 35 people. I only want one bus. I've gone there with two buses, too many. One bus, me, Ellie, and you on the bus, and it's going to be a great time, but you got to sign up soon because we're filling up already. So if you want to be a part of the trip to Israel this coming spring, 2018, April 2018, go to crossexamine.org and look it up, or you can go to livingpassages.com. Our friend Rhonda Sand organizes all of our trips, and she's the one that can do it for you. So either livingpassages.com or crossexamine.org, you'll be able to find the trip to Israel. But sign up soon. I'm telling you, we're running out of room. So you want to be a part of it, do it soon. Now, we're talking to my friend, Dr. Richard Howe. He's going to be at, I may have said earlier, August. It's not August. Obviously, that's past. It's October 13th to 14th, just a couple of weeks from now, at Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, ses.edu. You want to sign up for it. And we're talking about a dialogue that uh, Richard and Ken Ham will have regarding apologetic methodology. And Richard, we, you were explaining presuppositionalism and an approach that uh, Ken might take to presupposition, pre easy for me to say, presuppositionalism, that you can't take outside ideas and apply them to the Bible. How would you respond if he were to say that? Okay, so what, what he means by that, uh, he, he, he gives several examples. He would say, for example, we don't let the scientist tell us that it's not possible for people to walk on water. So we don't let the scientists say, since that's not possible when the Bible says Jesus walked in the water, the Bible must be wrong. We don't let scientists tell us that it's not possible to be born of a virgin. So when the Bible tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin, it must be wrong. We don't let the scientists tell us that you can't rise from the dead. But So when Jesus rises from the dead, somehow the Bible is wrong. And then, and this is, the, this is, thing, this is what he's aiming towards, so we shouldn't let scientists tell us that the earth is millions of years old and that the creation wasn't in six literal days. And so, in his mind, to allow the naturalism, so to speak, of this, of this, and the scientism that denies the supernatural, to deny walking on water, virgin birth, resurrection from the dead, he thinks somehow it's the same species of intrusion to allow the scientists to suggest that the Earth may be more than just 6,000 years old. So that's, and so he's repudiating this conventional scientific view about the age of the earth. Well, I, I don't quarrel with that. He may be right in terms of the science being wrong. I'll let the scientists dispute that. But I think it's illicit to, to equate what, let's say, Hugh Ross is doing with his astronomical arguments about the age of the earth. It's wrong to equate that with some kind of philosophical naturalism that denies the supernatural events of miracles. Those are just two, two different species, if you will, of events. So as a counterexample to Ken, when he says, well, this is letting outside ideas when you let the scientists say millions of years, and so you're denying the authority of the Bible. As a counterexample, I go to Joshua 10. And Joshua 10 is the, is the uh, story of when Joshua commanded the sun to stand still. And you remember, he commands the sun to stand still. It basically stands still for the, almost the better part of a day, so to speak. And it gives daylight long enough for Israel to win the battle. And, and, and everybody up until, almost everybody up until the 16th century, pagan as well as Christian, would have regarded that the earth was standing still with respect to the sun, and the sun was moving across the sky. I mean, there's hardly anything more obvious 
if you walk outside, then seemingly you're standing still, and the and the sun's moving across the sky very slowly. So that was called uh, geocentrism, where the sun, the uh, Earth is the center of the solar system. Right. That was the standard view. They began to get challenged by people like Copernicus, and then it really rose to a head in Galileo and his challenging the conventional science of the day and, and these kind of things. Well, what's interesting about the debate, especially when Galileo comes on the scene, is, is how this debate is characterized between Galileo and Cardinal Bellarmine. Because Bellarmine's argument in defense of the literal interpretation of Joshua, he basically said this. If Joshua commanded the sun to stand still, you can't command something to stand still if it's not moving. See, and it wouldn't be moving according to Galileo and Copernicus's view, right? So he was just saying, look, a straightforward reading of Joshua 10, the sun must be moving. So when Galileo says the sun is not moving, it's the earth, they're obviously violating the, the clear, straightforward reading of the text. Well, of course, Today, no one that I know of believes that that the uh, sun is moving across the sky and that the earth is standing still. We all now understand, well, no, it's actually the earth spinning on its axis that gives the appearance of the sun moving. So now what we do with that verse is we, we say, well, what that is is language of appearance, sometimes called phenomenological language. Well, that's not really uh, doing violence to the hermeneutics because we speak in the language of appearance all the time. You say, you see somebody with a really fast car, you said, man, that thing took off down the road, in six seconds it disappeared. Well, the car didn't literally disappear, right? It just got out of your sight, so you can't see it. So it disappeared in terms of the appearance. Or a verse like Joel, where it says that the, sun, that the moon will turn to blood. Well, I don't know anybody that thinks the moon is literally going to become liquid. You know, with hemoglobin and white blood cell. No, it just means it, it, it turns the appearance of blood because it becomes very red, as it always does during a total lunar eclipse. So I, I, I would argue, and I'm going to try to uh, see if I can convince Ken of this, that nobody fails at some point to bring in, quote, outside ideas to help us understand the Bible. That's exactly what we had to do with Joshua 10. Now, it gets more serious than that because the Bible also says things like in Psalm 91.4 that the Lord will bring us under his wings and cover us with his feathers. Now, I don't know anybody that believes God is a giant bird, okay, on the basis of those verses. So when we read verses that describe God in these kind of ways, we know that they're metaphors. But how we know they're metaphors is the rub. And I would submit, just like we would know that the sun standing still is phenomenological language because of the science. We can know that verses that describe God in these physical terms, we can know those are metaphor from the philosophy. So the, the issue isn't outside ideas versus non-outside ideas. It's just good outside ideas versus bad outside ideas right. because nobody, nobody doesn't bring outside ideas. Everyone brings exactly. outside ideas to every text, whether it's the Bible or the newspaper. You wouldn't be able to Absolutely. understand anything. And this is something, That's by exactly the way, right. that we teach at Southern Evangelical Seminary. When you go through systematic theology, most seminaries will ignore what we won't ignore, and that is we will teach what's called prolegomena. And prolegomena are the things you need to know before you even look at the Bible, before you can even understand what's in the Bible. And so 
you need to know logic, you need to know grammar, you need to know words mean things. You, you, you need certain things to even understand the text. And so you're always bringing outside ideas to the text. And as you just said, Richard, the only question is, are they good ideas or are they bad ideas? So that's going to be a fascinating discussion you're going to have with Ken Ham. I'm eager to see how he responds to what you said. But let me go back to the overall presuppositional approach. I'm still struggling to understand why anyone would think this is the way to prove that the Bible's true by assuming it's true. How is that not circular? Well, uh, I'll tell you what they will say, because I think it is circular in some vicious kind of sense. But what they will say is, more or less, the same thing you would say if someone accused you of trying to say that you, you, you have to have logic even, even to refute logic. And they would say, well, that's just arguing in a circle. What you would say, I'm sure, when you were defending logic is, well, it's not so much I'm just presupposing logic in order to make my argument. It's that logic is undeniably true. The law of non-contradiction is undeniable. That is, you can't even deny it without using the law of non-contradiction. Right. And so they would think, in principle, that's what they're doing. Now, my objection is what they're confusing is what the philosophers would call the ontology of what's going on versus the epistemology of what's going on, or if you will, the the uh, the reality of what's going on versus our knowing the reality of what's going on. So I grant that there has to be God before you could uh, argue anything, because if he's the creator, then if God didn't exist, there wouldn't be anything. That's right. Because he's, he's supreme being itself. But yes. that's different than saying, I've got to know that God exists before I can make an argument. So I, I, I think where their breakdown is, is they keep confusing the fact that there would certainly need to be God. They're confusing that with that they have to presuppose that there is a God, epistemologically speaking, in terms of knowing. And they go, that, you know, it's like uh, J.P. Moreland used this example in his Scaling the Secular City. I mean, if someone was trying to find their way to Charlotte, let's say, to come to our conference in October, and they needed a map to get to Charlotte, well, of course, there would have to be the city of Charlotte before there could be a map. It wouldn't make sense to have a map to Charlotte without there being a Charlotte. But in terms of, so in the order of being, Charlotte is before the map. But in the order of knowing, you might have to have a map first to find Charlotte, mm-hmm. all right? Well, that's not an insult to Charlotte going, I can't believe you insult the dignity of Charlotte to think that you would <laughs> consult the map before you consulted the city. You go, no, I'm just saying the map is the way in which I find the pre-existing Charlotte, if you will. So it's similar with the classical method. We use God's revelation of himself through his creation as a map to find the truths about God's being and his attributes, his existence, and these kind of things. And of course, there's more to it than that from special revelation, but we're saying there's nothing less than that, that anywhere you stand in creation, or let me say it from the other direction, there's no place you can stand in creation that doesn't point to God as its maker. That's what the classical method is trying to to, uh, defend, and that we're giving up our most powerful tool in apologetics when we try to act Otherwise, that somehow there's some other way in which this procedure needs to go. We all agree that logic must exist for us to know anything. But you can deny God exists and still use logic. There just would be no logic unless God did exist, because he is the ground of it. And so at this 
This ontological, epistemological confusion not only infects this problem, but the same problem that the atheists have with objective morality. They always talk about, well, I can know right and wrong without God. Yeah, you can know it, but there would be no right unless God existed because he's the standard of righteousness. We're talking to my friend Dr. Richard Howe. We're talking about the conference in two weeks, October 13th and 14th in Charlotte, North Carolina at Calvary Church. Go to ses.edu for more. We're back with Richard in two minutes, so don't go away. Friends, not only do we have the Israel trip coming up in April and an advanced CIA coming up in May and then the regular CIA in August, there's some near-term events I want you to be aware of. On October 8th, I'll be in Rogers, Arkansas at First Baptist Church in Rogers, Arkansas. And then the thing we're talking about, or the event we're talking about today, is the National Conference on Christian Apologetics, Friday, October 13th, Saturday, October 14th, right here in Charlotte, North Carolina at Calvary Church, but you need to go to ses.edu to learn about it. My friend Dr. Richard Howe is one of the many speakers. I'll be a speaker there. Dr. Norman Geisler, Gary Habermas, you Ross, the list goes on and on. Jay Warner Wallace, they're all going to be there, and you can be there as well. Uh, and we're we're talking, or we just got done talking about the dialogue that two Christian brothers will have, one Richard Howe, the other Ken Ham, on this apologetic method. And then on Friday night, actually the dialogue is Saturday, but on Friday night prior to that, uh, Richard here, Dr. Richard Howe, will be debating with Dan Barker on the existence of God. Is that the actual topic, Richard? Is it the existence of God? Uh, I think we're we're titling it, Is There a God Who Speaks? And what we're doing was trying to brand the debate on the DVD series that AFA has just put together called The God Who Speaks, which is a uh, an exploration of the nature of the Bible, revelation of the Bible, and it's in its integrity, it's, in, it's, in, it's inerrancy, and it's transmission through history. So they've put together this uh, DVD that'll be debuted at our conference, and so we decided to have a debate about whether there even is a God who could speak. Mm. So All right. I think that's just a clever title that, that, that we propose for that. But yeah, in effect, that's what we're debating is, is the existence of God. Yeah, that's a fantastic uh, DVD that AFA is unveiling at the conference. Now, you were a part of it. I was a part of it. There's many others who were a part of this uh, DVD. I think it's about 90 minutes long. You're actually going to be able to see it. The world premiere is going to be at the conference and then, Richard, you're going to debate, and I assume they can buy the DVD. It actually doesn't release until, I think, April, or, or until January, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. In, uh, yeah, in 2018. I, I was actually, I guess for lack of a better term, a technical consultant on the project for right. the, several years while they're working on it. Of, of, hey, this would be a good guy in this particular subject. Here's uh-huh. a landmine to, un- to avoid unnecessary controversy, you know, right. and these kind of things to really make it the best it could be as, as much as I could. Okay. Well, I, it's it's fantastic, and uh, I think people are going to not only be able to see it, but maybe purchase advanced copies at the conference, if I'm not mistaken. But tell us about the debate that's happening Friday night. Who is Dan Barker? Dan Barker is the co-founder of the Freedom From Religion Foundation in Madison, Wisconsin. So probably if the Freedom From Religion Foundation has ever come on someone's radar screen, it's likely because of some kind of litigation that's gone on. They're, they're the organization that constantly is sort of monitoring what they consider to be illicit entanglements of government and religion. And so they'll go in and sometimes threaten to sue, maybe sometimes actually sue 
in order to try to leverage this and disentangle, you know, public school maybe having a prayer and they're gonna they're gonna sue the public school district or whatever, or at least threaten to. So it's those kind of things that he's trying to, in their mind, maintain the sufficient separation of church and state. That's 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 the sort of impetus behind the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Dan himself is an is an ex, if you will, Christian, lapsed right. Christian who went from being a um, uh, he was a music he's a musician and he played in a lot of crusades, wrote a lot of cr- sacred music, and then lost his faith. He wrote a book called Losing Faith in Faith, and then later mm-hmm. he reworked a book titled Godless. So okay. now he's uh, more or less uh, on a crusade against people's beliefs in God to try to disabuse them of that. He's trying to crusade against the God who isn't there. Okay, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so he's gonna, you're going to be debating him now. What kind of arguments do you think he's going to bring to the table? Is he going to give arguments to support atheism, or is he just going to try and tear down Christianity, or both? Well, I think it'll be both. I mean, taking a, a, a cue from perhaps some of his more recent writings. Uh, he's not unlike a Richard Dawkins in that he wants to paint the picture that the God of the Bible is this ogre, uh, which, by the way, has nothing to do with whether he exists or not, at least initially. Right. And, I mean, if he tries to say, well, the God of the Old, of the Old Testament is an egomaniacal uh, ogre and, and evil, all this kind of stuff, I'll go, well, I'll, I'll grant that for you in a preliminary fashion if you'll grant that he exists, because you <laughs> couldn't be an ogre if you didn't exist. Right. I'm being a little facetious, but the point being that he wouldn't be able to sustain, it wouldn't matter at, at one level whether God did or didn't conduct himself with the gentlemanly fashion that a Dan Barker thinks he ought to. That wouldn't, wouldn't matter if he didn't exist. So the, those things could only be true of God if he actually did exist. And again, I'm being a little facetious, but there's also a serious philosophical point uh, there And so he will, and he has before, I've actually debated him before in the late 90s at the University of Florida, and he will try to debunk, for example, if I brought a Kalam argument, he's going to probably be, be loaded for why the Kalam argument isn't sound in principle. He'll probably challenge some of the science that is often marshaled for a beginning of the universe as an argument for God as the beginner of the universe. He'll try, probably try to counter some of that science. But what I'm going to do, and, and I don't know, I, I'm not trying to give away my, my secrets here, but I, I'm inclined more not to the neglect of these other more popular arguments or more commonly known arguments, but I'm also going to try to sneak in a philosophical argument, a metaphysical argument for the existence of God coming from Aquinas, uh, and just see where that leaves us in terms of, well, how would you refute that in terms of the metaphysics? So it's a challenge because the, uh, the 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 other the problem with these standard arguments that people are more familiar with is I'm not a scientist, and I'm not as a as acute on the science as say someone like you are or Jim is or or Bill Craig or these guys. So I'm at a loss to really go too far in the volleys. If I say, well, you know, this physicist said this. Oh no, well this physicist said that. I can probably volley once or twice, <laughs> and then that's about it. I feel much more comfortable trying to defend the metaphysics. Of God, and it also gives us not only God's existence, but many of His attributes as right. well. So we'll see how how that goes. Yes, well, if there's anyone that can do it, it's you. The problem with any debate is always the amount of time you have. It's the the right. time factor that creates the trouble. 
Uh, and unfortunately, since we're not schooled in metaphysics, at least not classical metaphysics in, or scholastic metaphysics in our culture, it's almost like you have to give them a philosophy course before they can even understand the arguments. That's just the general public. That's the weakness public. of those yeah. arguments. Yeah. Yeah. yeah come, back in a, come back next week after we finished a week in Aristotle and Aquinas, and then let me give you my <laughs> argument. You know? <laughs> yeah, are you going to use Aquinas' fifth way, second way? What are you going to... Well, I'm probably going to use Aquinas' argument out of his uh, treatise on being an essence. So uh -huh. it's, it's none of the five ways. Oh, all right. Uh, okay. It, it, it's actually, I mean, it, it, they're, they're connected, but it's actually an argument he gives in, in, the, in a treatise he wrote called On Being an Essence. It traffics in the distinction between essence and existence. Okay, uh, so which we, is we'll, essential we'll to the... that goes. And believe yeah. it or not, I think it's easier for me to just get out enough about what that distinction is to make the argument understandable than it is for some of the things that underlie some of the five ways, at least for right. me it will be. So we'll see. Right, we'll right. See now, um, going back to his possible uh, dispute about the existence of God because God is immoral, um, what, what do you think he would say if you said, well, what's your standard of morality by which you judge such a being as being an ogre? Where, I mean, you're an atheist. Are you a materialist? I mean, what, where, where are you getting this moral standard? Is he a materialist? What would he say, do you think? Well, uh, one of the weaknesses, I think, of these conversations, especially uh, as I hear them in the public, is a person's failure to come to terms with the distinction between good more broadly considered, and then moral good, which is what we're all concerned about. Because mm -hmm. after all, we use the word good. Hey, that's a good pizza. Hey, this is a really good car. You know, right. uh, uh, and we use the word good to describe a lot of things. And I think there's something common among all those things that informs what we go on to mean when we talk about moral good. And so I think the atheist doesn't have the tools in his toolbox to make that distinction, first of all. And so consequently, I think a lot of times they equivocate, where on the one hand, evil will just be pain, you know, a tsunami right. or a tornado or a disease, and then all of a sudden evil becomes a moral thing, an ought. And I, I, don't, I don't think they have what they need metaphysically to just move from one to the other the way we would know how to do as, as Christians and as theists, to make the connection between well, pain and suffering isn't necessarily evil in the moral sense, but they don't really they don't they don't bring that distinction up deliberately, so they can just slide back and forth almost like an equivocation fallacy because everybody hates pain. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden, trafficking in everybody's emotional uh, investment and in not wanting to feel pain, you all of a sudden are making this moral argument without any justification of well, where did that where did the moral part come from? Right, you know, right. I don't think they're gonna. I don't. I don't think he's gonna be able to do that. No, and atheists really—that's one of the biggest Achilles heel of heels of atheism. Uh, and uh, they they basically have to steal morality from God to complain that God is immoral. I mean, they're they have that to sit in God's lap to slap his book, face. Yeah, I don't know. Somebody <laughs> ought to do that. You know, I, I've had going back to the presuppositionalist. Uh, uh, situation. I've had some people on the internet think I'm a presuppositionalist from an apologetic method perspective because the book Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case sounds like it's presuppositionalist, but it's not. It's. I mean, we're it's presupposing. Absolutely not. Yeah, we're we. They're presupposing. You're making an ontological point. 
Yes, I'm making an ontological point. I'm not saying that you got to believe the Bible's true in order to show it's true. I'm saying that there are certain things about reality, like the laws of logic and the law of causality and and evil, morality, these kind of things that you need in order to make certain arguments, and they only would exist if God existed. That's what I'm saying. That's right. So, That's exactly right. Richard, and in, in fact, in my experience, I find very few presuppositionalists with whom I have dialogued that can understand the point you just made. They keep thinking that's presupposing God epistemologically. You go, no, I'm no. not. I'm saying that I'm arguing for his existence, uh, that he right. has to be there ontologically. Hey, Richard, it's going to be a great conference, and I'm so happy you're going to be there. That's Dr. Richard Howe. He's going to be dialoguing with Ken Ham on presuppositionalism, and then he's going to be debating. Well, actually, he's going to be debating Dan Barker Friday night, and then he'll have the dialogue with Ken Ham on Saturday. Richard, thanks for being on the show. There's many other folks that are going to be there. SES.edu, two weeks, October 13th and 14th. See you guys there. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.